We're here in Judges 19. Let me pause and pray, and then we'll get into our study together. Lord, we thank you for this time in your word. We thank you, Lord, that we can come to church in the middle of the week and just settle our hearts before you. We thank you that you're here because you tell us in your word where two or more are gathered. There you are in our midst. And so we pray, God, that you would be honored and glorified and pleased by all that you see and hear as we have sung songs of praise and as we fellowship together and now as we open up your word. We pray that you would direct us as we study these closing few chapters here in the book of Judges, that we would be more equipped and um, that we would in all ways strive to be more like Jesus. And we love you, Lord, and we thank you that you first loved us. And it's in Jesus' name we pray these things. And everyone said, Amen. So I'm, I'm not planning to finish the book of Judges tonight, but between uh, tonight and next uh, Wednesday, we'll probably finish out the book of Judges and go right into the book of Ruth. But we are here in the, the 19th chapter of Judges, and I mentioned at our study last time I was with you that uh, Bible scholars believe that chapters 17 to 21 were added as an epilogue to Judges to highlight the spiritual confusion and sinful condition in Israel at that time. And so much of what you read in the book of Judges, the Hebrew term for Judges is Shoftim, because God raised up these military leaders to help lead and direct the nation of Israel during this time. Um, But the cycle of sin that happens in the nation of Israel during this time was that the Israelites followed God, they loved God, and then they got complacent, and then they... Um, because of their complacency, they ended up uh, giving into idolatry, the worship of the other nations around them. And then God sent the other nations around them to attack them. Then they cried out to God, and then God raised up a judge, a military leader, and gave them victory. And, and then they had peace for a period of time, and then they repeated that cycle. And so that's what we've been talking about through the book of Judges. So it is a time, really, when you can see a lot of God's grace. Because despite the fact that these people were sinning against God time and time again, and they got into this cycle of obeying God, sinning against God, obeying God, sinning against God, he was still very gracious to them. Because every time that he spanked them by bringing another foreign army against them, they cried out to the Lord and he had mercy on them. And he raised up another judge and gave them another period of peace, which would usually last anywhere from a few years to a few decades. The last of the judges is mentioned, uh, the last of the judges mentioned in the book of Judges. There's still a couple more in in 1 Samuel, but uh, is Samson, and uh, Samson closes out chapter 16. And then it's as if most Bible scholars think that that these last few chapters from 70 to 21 were added to just kind of highlight some of the depravity and sinfulness and immorality so that we get a real taste of what happened during the period of the Judges, which covers about 400 years. So these last few chapters are not chronological. They're not in any particular order. They're just given to us so that we can be, you know, just kind of appalled. (laughs) That's the intent. It's like, just so you know, uh, what was going on in Israel? Uh, here's some closing chapters that will r- really um, just, you know, cause you to drop your jaw and to think, wow, this is some really bad stuff happening. Yeah. And all the more reason why we should be thankful for God's grace, because he should have wiped them off the face of the earth a long time ago, like all the rest of us too, right? Because of our sinfulness against God. I mean, how many times does God have to put up with our sinfulness and our disobedience. But God is gracious, not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. And so God is long-suffering. He is patient with us, the Bible says. 
And the only reason why he has allowed us to be as we are is because he's wanting us to turn to him. Now, there is a time limit with God. And in his time, he will say, enough is enough. The end is here. He's going to come again. There's going to be an end to this earth. There's going to be a new heaven and a new earth. So God God has a timetable about things. But fortunately, he hasn't exercised all that just yet because he's patient with with us. And he wants as many as possible to be saved. And so you see a lot of his grace through the book of Judges in spite of how terrible their their uh, condition was spiritually. And we're going to see it here in chapter 19. It's, it's not pretty at all. Uh, it's going to be pretty appalling if you haven't read ahead. Key verses, by the way, in these last few chapters, uh, in chapter 18, 1, and in chapter 19, verse 1, we'll see here in a minute, in those days there was no king in Israel. And then in chapter 17, verse 6, and chapter 21, 25, the last verse of the whole book of Judges adds to that. In those days, there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And we're going to see that right here. So this is a difficult chapter. It is uh, a a terrible chapter. It's rather uh, appalling and disgusting. Um, And if you think I'm being dramatic, let's read it together. Take a look. Chapter 19, verse 1. And it came to pass in those days, when there was no king in Israel, that there was a certain Levite staying in the remote mountains of Ephraim, And he took for himself a concubine from Bethlehem in Judah. Okay, pause for a moment. We have here uh, two characters introduced to our story here. We have a Levite. He is unnamed. And we have a concubine who is unnamed. Now, the Levite man is of the priestly order. He's going to be doing something here very uncustomary for uh, someone in the priestly order, the Levites. He takes a concubine. Who was a concubine? A concubine in this, in this culture, and in most cultures where concubines were recognized, were basically an, another woman who was considered your wife, but she was really only for the purpose of sexual pleasure. And in this particular day, concubines were seen as second-class wives. Uh, she got food, she got clothing, she got shelter, uh, but she had no claim to any inheritance as a wife, even though she was referred to as a wife And her husband was referred to as a husband. Um, However, if the first original wife was barren and could not have children, then any children born to the relationship between the man and the concubine were considered heirs of the family. Otherwise, the concubine had no uh, claim to any inheritance within this family. She was purely for the man's sexual pleasure. Now, the Greeks, many years later, the Greeks had a saying about a wife and a concubine and a mistress. The Greeks said that every man should have a mistress for his entertainment, a concubine for his sexual pleasure, and a wife to bear him legitimate children. So you can see over the centuries uh, how, how various cultures accepted concubines as kind of normal, although they were never normal in God's eyes. So you have here a guy who should have known better because he was of the priestly order. He's a Levite, and, um, which means he belonged to the tribe of Levite, which means he had good genes. But anyway, uh, and the, yeah, I'll, I'll overuse my jokes as many times as I feel like it's necessary. And then, and then he takes on a concubine here. All right. Now, verse 2, but his concubine played the harlot. In other words, she 
she wanted to go have fun and she didn't really want to belong to this guy alone. So she, she goes out finding other guys, hooking up on Tinder and all that stuff. So his concubine played the harlot against him. And I might look old, but I know what's going on, okay? And, <clears throat> and went away from him to her father's house at Bethlehem in Judah and was there four whole months. Okay, so she's like, enough of this guy. I don't want to be his concubine anymore. I want to go have fun. I want to hook up with other guys. And so she goes back to her daddy's house uh, in Bethlehem in Judah. She's there for four months. Now, verse 3, then her husband arose and went after her to speak kindly to her and bring her back having a servant and a couple of donkeys with him. Okay, so, that, you know, this is commendable, at least, that he's wanting to pursue her. He wants to go after her. He speaks kindly to her. He wants her to come back. Now, I want you to note that, because it looks good at the moment, but it, it isn't going to last, okay? So he speaks kindly to her. Hey, come on back, you know, you shouldn't have left me. Please come back, come back. And so he brings her back. And so she brought him into, so he's there visiting her in her father's house. And so she brought him into her father's house. And when the father of the young woman saw him, he was glad to meet him. Now his father-in-law, the young woman's father, detained him. And he stayed with him three days. And so they ate and drank and lodged there. So, you know, you get the picture here. He's like, he shows up to go after his concubine, which again in that time was considered a wife, just a second class wife. So he's considered a husband, she's a wife, and he goes to meet, in essence, his father-in-law. He's like, hey, good to meet you. Good to meet you. Why don't you come in? We'll, we'll eat a little bit. We'll drink a little bit. We'll have a good time. So he's hanging out with his father-in-law, and they're drinking together, and, they're, and you know, they're just, you know, they're smoking weed and all this good stuff, and well, that's not really good stuff, but, you know. And so verse 5, then it came to pass in the fourth day that, he, that they arose early in the morning, and he stood to depart. But the young woman's father said to his son-in-law, Refresh your heart with a morsel of bread, and afterward go your way. And I don't know why I, I hear that in an Irish accent. I don't know, just <laughs> morsel of bread. You know, just have a morsel of bread. Why don't you have some more? Well, drink some more and eat some more morsel of bread. And so... Then you can be on your way. Now, he's already been there three days. On the fourth day, he gets up to go, and the father-in-law is just like, come on, we're having a good time. Just eat some more and drink with me. Okay. So he eats some more and drinks again. Verse 6. So they sat down, and the two of them ate and drank together. And then the young woman's father said to the man, please be, be content to stay all night and let your heart be merry. And when the man stood up to depart, his father-in-law urged him. So he lodged there again. And then he arose early in the morning on the fifth day. To depart. But the young woman's father said, Please refresh your heart. So they delayed until afternoon, and both of them ate. It doesn't say drank, because they've probably been having enough. You know, that's five days they've been drinking together. And when the man stood to depart, this is day five, he and his concubine and his servant, his father in law, the young woman's father, said to him, Look, the day is now drawing toward evening. Please spend the night. Have you ever seen a father in law love a son in law so much like this guy? But he does, like, stay, come on. See, the day is coming to an end. Lodge here that your heart may be married. Tomorrow, go your way early so that you may get home. However, the man was not willing to spend that night. So he rose and departed. Okay, now, this is, this is late in the day on the fifth day. So he's getting a late start. That's, that's key to the story. He's getting a late start. And so, so he left, departed, and came opposite Jebus, that is Jerusalem. Now, Jebus was the ancient name 
for the city of Jerusalem. Jerusalem, Yerushalim, means uh, the city of peace. It was not always the city of peace. It was Jebus before that. And Jebus was occupied by pagan people. It wasn't until King David came along as a warrior and subdued Jebus and the Jebusites that then it was renamed to Jerusalem, the city of peace. And that's when it became then a city, the capital city uh, for the Israelites. But, up, but at this particular time, Jerusalem is not a city that is occupied by the Jews. Uh, Jerusalem is Jebus, and Jebus is occupied by the Jebusites, and the Jebusites are pagan people. They're Gentiles. So they come here opposite Jebus. With him were two saddled donkeys. His concubine was also with him. Verse 11. They were near Jebus, and the day was far spent. And the servant said to his master, Come, please, let us turn aside into this city of the Jebusites and lodge in it. But his master said to him, We will not turn aside here into a city of foreigners who are not of the children of Israel. We will go on to Gibeah. Okay, so that's why I wanted to point it out. Why would he not stay there in Jerusalem? It should be a friendly city. Not at this time. It's not occupied by the Jews. And, and, and they're Jews traveling here. This Levite and this concubine and these servants, they don't want to find lodging in a, in a place where the pagans are. So they want to head on to Gibeah. Now, Gibeah is part of the territory that belongs to the tribe of Benjamin. And so the Levite says it'll be safer there. So they've already gone from Bethlehem to Jerusalem, which is about anywhere from three, four, five miles, depending on how you travel. Uh, and then they get to Jerusalem, Jebus, and he wants to go further to Gibeah, which is about another three miles. So they, they're, they're getting a late start late in the day, and they're traveling at least somewhere in the neighborhood of six, seven, eight miles on foot, you know, with a couple of donkeys. And so nightfall is, is coming as they're walking these eight miles or so. And so he's like, no, we, we, we can't turn there. Um, his master said, we will not turn aside here into the city of foreigners who are not of the children of Israel. We will go on to Gibeah. So verse 13. So he said to his servant, come, let us draw near to one of these places and spend the night in Gibeah or in Ramah. And they passed by and went their way. And the sun went down on them near Gibeah, which belongs to Benjamin. Okay, the tribe of, the, of Benjamin, the Benjamites live here. And so they turned aside there to go in to lodge in Gibeah. And when he went in, he sat down on the open square of the city, for no one would take them into his house to spend the night. Okay, note, this is highly un unusual in this day because, uh, and, and you know, still, even today, Middle, East, Middle Eastern people are very gracious, uh, one of the most hospitable uh, peoples. Uh, and particularly in this day, you, you go into a, a, a region, a city, a town, uh, where you as a Jew uh, have other fellow Jews who live there and no one is taking you in, very unusual. Obviously, this is the day long before Holiday Inn. Where would people lodge? You would sit in the, in the town square where there would usually be commotion of people coming and going. You'd sit in some prominent place and then people who were moved with hospitality would come up to you and say, you strangers? Yeah, we're strangers. Come stay with me. That's the way they would do it. They would open up their homes. Hospitality is a wonderful gift. Some of you have it. And I wouldn't uh, pretend to tell you how to exercise your hospitality because, you know, you, you need to be wise about who you bring into your home and who you don't. But I do think as Americans, we need to learn something that other cultures understand better than we. And that is to be more hospitable, to open up your home 
And, you know, to give lodging to people who are in need from time to time. It doesn't have to necessarily be a long-term basis, but it's good to be friendly and hospitable as Christians and to open up our home and to, you know, give lodging where we're needed. So this is the scene here where they come into town. It's now, you know, the sun is setting. No one is giving them lodging. Well, here comes one guy, verse 16. Just then an old man came in from his work in the field at evening, who also was from the mountains of Ephraim. Now, that's where this Levite is from. He was staying in Gibeah, whereas the men of the place were Benjamites. And when he raised his eyes, this is, this is the old man, when he raised his eyes, he saw the traveler in the open square of the city. And the old man said, where are you going and where do you come from? And so he said to him, we are passing from Bethlehem in Judah toward the remote mountains of Ephraim. I am from there. I went to Bethlehem in Judah. Now I am going to the house of the Lord. Now the house of the Lord is in Shiloh at this time, not Jerusalem. But there is no one who will take me into his house, although we have both straw and fodder for our donkeys and bread and wine for myself, for your female servant and for the young man who was with your servant. There is no lack of anything. So in other words, you know, we're, we're not wanting to mooch off of you. We, we have our own supplies. We just need a place to stay. And the old man said, in verse 20, peace be with you. However, let all your needs be my responsibility. Only do not spend the night in the open square. And so he brought him into his house and gave, him, and gave fodder to the donkeys, and they washed their feet and ate and drank. Okay, now here's where it gets dark. And as they were enjoying themselves, suddenly certain men of the city, perverted men, surrounded the house and beat on the door. They spoke to the master of the house, the old man, saying, bring out the man who came to your house that we may know him. And then New King James adds carnally. Now, if you have a New King James Bible, that's what I'm teaching from. The word carnally is italicized uh, because it's not in the original language. And trying to be real true to the original language, the ESV just simply says that the guy's knocked at the door and asked for him to send out the man that we may know him. And it is the Hebrew word yada. And ESV stops there. And you go, just, just know him? Is that all they wanted to do? It's just like get to know him? Like, what's your name? No, it's, it's more than that. NIV translate, translates it that they might have sex with him. So New King James picks up on the word carnal so that we understand what is, what is this type of knowing that they want. The men of this city have knocked on the door of this old man who's given lodging to the Levite and the concubine and to their servants because the men of the city want to have sex with this Levite. Does this story sound eerily familiar? If you know your Bibles very well, Genesis 19 is a very similar account in Genesis chapter 19, you don't, need, you don't need to turn there, I'll just uh, read it real briefly. This is the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. When at this particular time, there were two angels that God sent. These angels took on human form. They came to the house of Lot in order to warn Lot, you need to leave because God's going to destroy the city. And when Lot brought in these two male angels who had human forms, it says in Genesis 19, verse 4, but before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both old and young, all the people from every quarter surrounded the house. And they called to Lot and said to him, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them carnally. It's the same phrase. We want to have sex with them. Now in the story in Genesis 19, it goes on to say, so Lot went out to them through the doorway, shut the door behind him and said, trying to reason with the men of the town. He says, please, my brethren, do not do so, so wickedly. 
See now, this is terrible, but listen to what Lot does. See now, I have two daughters who have not known a man. They're virgins. Please let me bring them out to you and you may do to them as you wish. Only do nothing to these men since this is the reason they have come under the shadow of my roof. And they said, the men of the town said to Lot, stand back. This one came in to stay here, and he keeps acting as a judge, talking about Lot. Now we will deal worse with you than with them. So they pressed hard against the man Lot and came near to break down the door. But the men reached out their hands. These are the angels from the inside, reached out their hands, pulled Lot into the house with them and shut the door. And they struck the men who were at the doorway of the house with blindness, both small and great, so that they became weary trying to find the door. Now pick it up back here in Judges uh, 19, because I want you to see what happens. These guys come to the door, they knock, same scene. The rest of the verse, verse 23, but the man, the master of the house, went out to them and said to them, no, my brethren, I beg you, do not act so wickedly, seeing this man has come into my house, do not commit this outrage. Look, here is my virgin daughter. Does a similar thing that what Lot did. Here's my virgin daughter and the man's concubine. Bring, let me bring them out now. Humble them and do with them as you please. But to this man do not do such a vile thing. But the men would not heed him. So the men took his concubine and brought her out to them. And they knew her and abused her all night until morning. And when the day began to break, they let her go. So if you thought I was being dramatic at the, stop, at the top of the Bible study, you realize now just how bad this is. It's a terrible parallel here with what you have happening in Genesis 19 and what you have happening in Judges 19. Men come to the door of of another um, man who lives in the city. They want to have sex with the visitors who are in the house. Lot offers his two daughters. In that case, the angels who were sent by the Lord rescued Lot said, get back in here and you're not sending your daughters out. So no harm came to those daughters. In this case, this man offers up his daughter and this concubine of the Levite to appease these guys who have come to have sex with the Levite man. This whole thing is messed up. This whole thing is perverted. This whole thing is, is uh, hard to read. The events in Genesis 19 happened with pagans, people who did not worship God. People who lived in Sodom and Gomorrah were not worshipers of God. The people in Gibeah were Jews. These are God's people who understood God's law. They understood God's uh, declaration of what is right and what is wrong. And this is clearly wrong. And so what is happening here is, is so tragic on many levels. Well, verse 20 says, Then the woman came as the day was dawning and fell down at the door of the man's house where her master was till it was light. So the men of the city have their way with her all night long. The Levite turned the concubine over to the men of the city, and she's completely ravished all night long. So now it's almost daylight, and she creeps back to the house where they were given lodging. And verse 27 says, when her master arose in the morning, this is the Levite, and opened the door of the house and went out to go his way, there was his concubine fallen at the door of the house with her hands on the threshold. And he said to her, get up and let's be going. But there was no answer. So the man lifted her onto the donkey and the man got up and went to his place. Okay, she died. She had a death grip on the threshold of the door. 
He gets up the next morning, opens the door, and he's like, get up. What's wrong with you? Doesn't even realize she's dead at first. Then when she's dead, he just throws her onto his donkey, and off they go with her corpse. The reason I had you uh, underline or or point out uh, back in in verse uh, 3 how this Levite pursued her and went after her when she went back to her father's house and he spoke kindly to her to bring her back. The irony, the horrible irony of the story is that he pursued her and spoke kindly to her until... Until he needed to save his own skin, and then she was disposable. I mean, just the hypocrisy of it all. He didn't love her. He was willing to use her if it was to his advantage. That's the way he completely treated her. That's what a concubine was. It was just the use and abuse of a woman. It was just the horrible mistreatment of a a woman. And then he goes after her, and he's like wooing her with kindness, only to throw her to the dogs if it meant saving his own life. And this is what he does. So there's nothing noble or honorable about this guy whatsoever. And now she's died. And he takes her, and this is where it gets even worse. How could it get worse? Look at verse 29. And when he entered his house, he took a knife, laid hold of his concubine, and divided her into 12 pieces limb by limb. And sent her throughout all the territory of Israel. And so it was that all who saw it said, No such deed has been done or seen from the day that the children of Israel came up from the land of Egypt until this day. Consider it, confer, and speak up. Now, what this guy does is he tries to send a message. By cutting this concubine up into 12 pieces, there are 12 tribes of Israel. He sends one piece of her body, piece by piece, one piece to each of the 12 tribes. Why does he do this? Because he's trying to make a statement of how outraged he is that the people of Gibeah have done this to his concubine. Can I just say something? And, you know, as we look at this chapter and you go, what's the takeaway from this? Okay, here's here's the takeaway for those of you taking notes. Don't let your outrage about wickedness be too late or too silent. He should have defended her a long time ago. He should have prevented this. He should have been a man and gone out and fought the men who wanted to take advantage of him rather than giving over this concubine to all the dogs. So instead of defending her honor, instead of fighting for her, he used her for his own advantage, and then he pretends to be outraged. Look what's happened to her. And so if there's something that we can take away from this horrible story, this is hard to read, it's hard to even think about. I mean, you know, the depravity of a person to start cutting up another human being's body and sending it in 12 different directions. I mean, this is just, you know, we're not supposed to be able to grasp this because this is just, you know, insanity here. Um, But should it at least, at least remind us that sometimes we can be outraged about wickedness and we wait way too long to speak up. And we are living in a time when we need to raise our voices about things that are wicked. Not just so that we can be yelling about wickedness. 
but so that we can still take a stand for what is righteous in our day. Because if we just allow wickedness to take over piece by piece, inch by inch, our whole country will end up just going along with the way of wickedness. And who's going to stand up for righteousness? You know, I've quoted him before. But Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was one of the few pastors in Germany during World War II to speak up against Hitler and Nazi Germany, Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, um, silence in the face of evil is itself evil, and God will not hold us guiltless. Not to speak is to speak, not to act is to act. The Nazis executed him. In 1945, he was 39 years of age. But at least he spoke up. He said, this is wrong. This is outrageous. This is wrong what is happening in our nation. They executed him for it. But he was a voice of righteousness in a day when there was a lot of unrighteousness. And this is a horrible story to read. But may we be reminded that where we see evil in our world, we need to be vocal about what is right We need to stand up for things that are true. We need to honor God in the things that are principled and the values that are biblical so that we can be a voice of righteousness in a land where a lot of wicked things happen. Again, not just so that we can bark at the wickedness, not just so that we can scream and yell, not so that we can, you know, be abrasive. That's not what I'm saying. But I'm saying at least a voice of righteousness wrapped in the love of the Lord Jesus ought to be proclaimed because if Christians don't speak up for what is true and right, who will? So this is part of our mandate. It's part of our mission to be salt and light in our world and and to speak truth in a a dark day. All right, we're going to go just a little bit into chapter 20 because I want you to see this this story continues. So we'll, we'll get a little bit through here. Chapter 20, so all the children of Israel came out from Dan to Beersheba as well as from the land of Gilead. And the congregation gathered together as one man before the Lord at Mizpah. And the leaders of all the people, all the tribes of Israel, presented themselves in the assembly of the people of God. 400,000 foot soldiers who drew the sword. Now the children of Benjamin heard that the children of Israel had gone up to Mizpah. And then the children of Israel said, tell us, how did this wicked thing happen? This wicked deed happened. Okay, so they're reacting to the body parts that they've received. And so now they've gathered at Mizpah, 400,000 foot soldiers in the Israeli army here, among the tribes of Israel, but not among Benjamin, because Benjamin is the tribe that they have a problem with. Uh, um, In the tribe of Benjamin here in Gibeah uh, is, is where this whole tragic event happened. And so after getting the body parts, the leaders are like, we got to get together. 400,000 foot soldiers here, they gather at Mizpah. The children of Israel ask, they ask the Levite guy, how did this happen? And so verse 4, so the Levite, the husband of the woman who was murdered, answered and said, My concubine and I went into Gibeah, which belongs to Benjamin, to spend the night. And the men of Gibeah rose against me and surrounded the house at night because of me. They intended to kill me, but instead they ravished my concubine so that she died. Okay. He conveniently leaved out, left out the fact that he turned his concubine over to the men. You know, all he makes it sound like is, you know, they tried to kill me and then they captured her and I couldn't do anything. And, uh... and so verse six, so I took hold of my concubine, cut her into pieces and sent her throughout all the territory of the inheritance of Israel because they committed lewdness 
and outrage in Israel. Look, all of you are children of Israel. Give your advice and counsel here and now. And so all the people arose as one man, saying, None of us will go to his tent, nor will any turn back to his house. But now this is the thing which we will do to Gibeah. We will go up against it by lot. We will take ten men out of every hundred throughout all the tribes of Israel, a hundred out of every thousand, and a thousand out of every ten thousand, to make provisions for the people. And that when they come to Gibeah in Benjamin, they may repay all the vileness that they have done in Israel. And so all the men of Israel were gathered against the city, united together as one man. Now, notice, notice what they're doing here. They are outraged. I don't know, you know, what has outraged them more. You know, the incident that happened in Gibeah or the fact that these body parts were, were mailed out. But they're, they're outraged about all of this, okay? It's disgusting. It's horrible. It's, it's hard to comprehend. When they ask the Levite, you know, what happened, and he gives them kind of an abbreviated version, leaving, leaving out again that part about how he turned her over to them. They come together, 400,000 soldiers in Israel, they're ready to fight their own, think about this, they're ready to fight their own people. Eleven tribes are ready to go to war against the one, Benjamin, in Gibeah, because of this incident. So there's a, a couple of takeaways from the, the 20th chapter, and, and here's one of them. Don't let the culture define as right or wrong what God has already determined is right or wrong. The one thing that is commendable here is that they have decided that they have to make sure that this unrighteous thing doesn't happen again, and they're willing to fight to defend what God has said is right and what is wrong. And so what has happened in Gibeah is so vile. That's the word that's even used here. It's so wrong. It's so sinful. They're like, we're going to go fight even our own brothers because this is terrible what they've allowed to happen. And so read on. We'll go a little bit further. And so, verse 12, Then the tribe of Israel sent men throughout all the tribe of Benjamin, saying, What is this wickedness that has occurred among you? Now therefore deliver up the men, the perverted men who are in Gibeah, that we may put them to death and remove the evil from Israel. And it says, But the children of Benjamin would not listen to the voice of their brethren, the children of Israel. So what happens here is, the 11 tribes, they try some peaceful negotiations first. And they say to their, to their fellow uh, Jewish brothers in the tribe of Benjamin, if you'll turn over the men who did this murderous thing, this terrible thing of raping this woman, this whole deal, then we won't bring war. So you have a choice. You can turn them over and we'll punish the few, or we're going to wage war against you because we're going to purge we're going to purge the land of the evil here. And it says, unfortunately, the Benjamites would not listen to them. So instead, verse 14, instead the children of Benjamin gathered together from their cities to Gibeah to go to battle against the children of Israel. Now, how many, how many soldiers in the army of Israel? 400,000. What, what are the Benjamites thinking here? They're like, well, we can fight you. We can fight you. No, you can? Really? Well, how many can they pull together? Verse 15, and from their cities at that time, the children of Benjamin numbered 26,000 men who drew the sword. That's it. Besides the inhabitants of Gibeah who numbered 700 select men 
among all this people were 700 select men who were left-handed. Every one could sling a stone at a hair's breadth and not miss. Now, besides Benjamin, the men of Israel numbered 400,000. It repeats it. 400,000 men who drew the sword. All of these were men of war. All right, this is where I want to pause for tonight, but I want to say a few things before, before we close in the last couple of minutes we have. Um, 26,000 men of Benjamin trying to go up against 400,000 of their fellow Israelites. In addition to the 26,000 men who drew the sword, they have 700 men who were like special ops guys. The, se- the 700 men who were special ops, they could sling a stone with hair-like precision. Because it says here that they could, they could sling a stone a hair's breadth and not miss so uh, any target. Now, let me tell you something about slinging stones back in that day. Don't think of a slingshot like, you know, a little Y-shaped thing with an elastic little rubber band, okay? Think a leather pouch with leather strings. They would put a stone, usually about the size of a fist, in a leather pouch, and they would swing this. And the momentum, check this out, they could swing a stone and hit a target 200 yards. 200 yards the average speed, because even today, they'll demonstrate it in Israel. They'll show you. When I was in the Valley of Alat, they showed us, here, here's how you can sling a, uh, a slingshot. The average speed of a stone from a slingshot, 150 miles an hour. The, the major leagues, when they throw a baseball, a fastball is, is a good 95, 98 miles an hour. It's a really fast, fastball. Okay, I think the record's like 100 miles an hour. But 150 miles an hour, slinging a stone... 200 yards can hit a target hair's breadth. These 700 were left-handed. It's interesting. There are three references in the Bible to left-handed people, and it is all in reference to military people. And every time it's mentioned, the three times it's mentioned, it happens to be the tribe of Benjamin. The Benjamites were left-handed. Ehud is a judge mentioned earlier in the book of Judges, and it says that Ehud was left-handed. And he drew his sword with his left hand. It tells us also in, I think it's 1 Chronicles, 1 Chronicles chapter 12, verse 2, that two dozen men came to help King David fight. This is later. And it says that the two dozen men were ambidextrous. They could take a bow or they could take a sling in either hand, and they were Benjamites. And it says about these 700, these guys were Benjamites. The left-handed warriors had an advantage because most of the gates to a city were slanted to the right. And they could go up against the wall on their right side and have their left side. And they were, they were pretty good warriors being left-handed with a slingshot like this. What is ironic is the tribe of Benjamin were descendants of Benjamin. Benjamin was born to Rachel and Jacob. When Rachel was giving birth to Benjamin, she died in the process of giving birth to him. As she was dying, she named him Benoni, in Hebrew, which means son of my suffering. But right when she died, in a smart move, Jacob, the father, said, I don't want my son to always be known as the one whose mother died as he was being born. I don't want to call him Benoni, the son of my sorrow. He will be called Benjamin the son of my right hand. That's what Benjamin means. The son of my right hand. Because the right hand was the sign of strength. 
So it's ironic that the Benjamites, who are descendants of the namesake, which is the son of my right hand, were predominantly left-handed people. But anyway, as they are used here in this battle, um, they come fiercely against their brothers. We'll read the rest of the military campaign. But I want you to have one last takeaway here tonight. Number three, don't let your loyalty to others be greater than your loyalty to God. The Benjamites decided they were going to be loyal to the men of Gibeah who did such a terrible, vile thing. And their loyalty was misplaced. We're going to be loyal to our fellow Benjamites who live in Gibeah rather than to God. This was a perverse and wicked thing that the men of Gibeah did. And yet, instead of deciding we need to punish them for their wickedness, because God says it's wicked, we're going to fight for them and defend them, and it'll be to their own peril. Their loyalty was misplaced. Don't have misplaced loyalties. Uh, Friendships are wonderful. Relationships are wonderful. But you had better be most loyal to God than any other human being on the planet. And there are some times, unfortunately, when your loyalty to God means you can no longer be loyal to other people. And some of you need to hear that tonight. Your loyalty to God sometimes means you cannot be loyal to other people. In terms of friendship. In terms of, you know, the way that you acquiesce or the way that you, you know, coddle or the way that you condone. Okay? We have to be more loyal to God always. If we honor God, he'll take care of the rest. If we dishonor God because we're more loyal to people in in some of their sinful choices, then we're just aligning ourselves with their sinful choices, and in the process we're dishonoring God. That's what the Benjamites did here. And we'll read the rest of it next week. Let's pause and pray. Lord, as difficult as these chapters are, we pray that we would learn some things to take away and that you would use this. It's included in your word, so we receive it, we read it, and we learn from it. And uh, Lord, may, may you teach us these things. Uh, may we not allow the culture to redefine the things that you've already defined as right and wrong. Uh, may we be more loyal to you than anyone else. And um, Lord, may we be true to you and stand up for what is right, to lift up voices of righteousness in a world that is often very dark so that you can be exalted. If we lie down and we no longer declare the things that are right, the things that are wrong, who will? How will your righteous banner be lifted if not through your people? And may we be good and godly and gentle followers of Christ, that in the process of lifting up a righteous standard, uh, we do all we can to influence and win people for your glory. We don't want to be in a campaign of just being harsh and angry and mad at the world and the sin of the world. Lord, we have sin in our own hearts that we need to deal with on a regular basis. But we want to be men and women, young people, who represent you well as a standard of righteousness in a dark world, that we would be humble about it and loving about it, but we would be true, true to you, true to what is right and wrong. And we love you, Lord, and we thank you. Use us for your glory. 
in our world. Let us not be silent. May we reflect you well. And we pray this in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. Amen.